Dave Rubin and this is The Rubin Report. As always, guys, don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel and click that notification bell. And joining me today is the 62nd governor of the great state of Maryland and the author of Still Standing, Surviving Cancer, Riots, A Global Pandemic, and the Toxic Politics That Divide America, Governor Larry Hogan, welcome to The Rubin Report. Well, thank you, Dave. It's really great to be with you. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. That is quite a title of a book. I mean, yeah. you have got that is a your title is a book unto itself, uh, right. which I thought would be well. An you interesting... made it all the way through, so I was impressed with that. So thank you. Know, thank you. <laughs> I, I've become a master of the teleprompter, but actually, I thought that that would be an interesting place to start because uh, the book is coming out this week, and you actually made a whole bunch of additions to the book because of what's happening right now. So I thought that might be a, the right spot right. for us to kick off here. Yeah, Dave, it was already uh, kind of a long uh, title to begin with um, because we were trying to cover a lot of important uh, topics, you know, and I was covering, you know, when I, I, I was elected, um, kind of overcame, I was the biggest upset in America in 2014 in a, a very blue state. I was immediately hit with the dealing with riots in Baltimore and then life-threatening cancer. And, you know, we, we had a lot of interesting stories to write about. I really wanted to talk a little bit. It's not a heavy political read, but I wanted to talk a little bit about, you know, the divisive politics today and some of my thoughts on where we ought to be heading. Um, and and we put together this book sort of, uh, you know, February time frame when, when we were finished with it. And it was going to come out a little earlier. And, uh, and then the pandemic, we kind of put it on hold and asked the publisher to hold it. It would only hold it until now. Uh, and uh, they asked us if we would add so uh, some more current activities because I was dealing with this crisis. And we added about five chapters on the pandemic. And I think it makes it uh, kind of more interesting. And I I'm, tell some pretty straightforward stories about what we've been dealing with. Uh, but I'm hoping people will find it interesting. Yeah, so I want to go into each of the specific topics that you break down in the title, but let's start with the pandemic stuff, because as you just mentioned, you are a Republican governor of a largely blue state. If I'm not mistaken, only two Republican governors have ever been reelected in, in Maryland in its entire history. Um, so maybe we should start there first. What's it like being an outsider governor, whether it's you know yeah. a, a, a red guy in a blue state or a blue guy in a red state, just what's that like first before pandemic time, and then we'll talk about that. Sure, yeah. So I, I you know I'm a lifelong uh, small business guy. Uh, never never held elective office until I was elected governor. Um, yeah, our state was uh, has the highest Democratic registration of any state in America. In 2014, I got elected. It was kind of a shock. I mean, nobody expected me to. I came from nowhere. We weren't even on the radar screen. It was kind of, I was the least likely to uh, succeed, I think. Uh, nobody thought I was going to be governor. Uh, but I pulled together a coalition of, you know, all the few Republicans we had in our state, along with a bunch of independents and Democrats, and I got elected. Uh, and then I'm governing in a state um, that's a, a fairly liberal Democratic state with a legislature that's 70 percent um, you know, Democrats in both chambers, every single statewide elected official is a Democrat. Uh, I'm only the second Republican in 50 years to be elected and the second one to be reelected in 242 years. So yeah. it, it's, look, well, I think one of the things I've learned in a situation like that is that you've got to figure out a way uh, to uh, work with people on the other side of the aisle. And, and it may be different if you're, say, a Republican in a red state or you're a Democrat in a, in a blue state, you don't have to develop those relationships and you don't have to 
maybe compromise or find a way to reach that middle ground, you know, where you can all work together. So maybe out of necessity to get things done, I had to be more pragmatic um, and figure out how do you how do you reach common sense solutions and, and actually fix some problems. And it turns out that turns that's what a lot of people seem to want. Uh, because, um, you know, a lot of Democrats and Republicans and independents seem to like it. And they they reelected me. And, you know, we seem to be making some progress. Are you, are you telling me that people vote you guys in to fix problems? Is that is that what it's all well, about? I know. I know. David sounds like a strange concept in <laughs> politics today because we don't see a lot of that. Um, but I really do think it's what a lot of people want. I mean, you know, we can talk about the, the politics on the right and the left. Uh, I think most people, regardless of where they fall on the spectrum, they really do want uh, their the people they elect to to office, regardless of which side of the aisle they come from. They just want people to get to work and get things done. And uh, and I think they're frustrated with the political process and the fact that they don't, they see a lot of divisiveness and dysfunction. They don't think people are, people are getting the job done. You mentioned that you were a small businessman before going into politics. My sense is that the future of politics, probably on either side, although I think probably more on the Republican side, is that the day of the long-term politician, the guy who comes up through the system, uh, is over and that the future will be people who built their own businesses, who innovated, maybe were in the tech world, that those will be the yeah. future politicians. Do you think that gave you unique, uh, a unique way of looking at the world that is been, has been relevant for governing? I, you know, well, first of all, I agree with you. I, I, I think that is what we're going to see. It's what we should see. I mean, I've for a long time uh, sort of been arguing against uh, career politicians who spend their entire, you know, professional lives in elective office. And it's, I think it's what the founding fathers originally had in mind, you know, about people just leaving whatever it was they normally did and going in and serving for a while in public service. Um, I actually, uh, you know, I'm, I'm the chair of the National Governors Association and uh, active in the Republican Governors Association. And I, a lot of my colleagues have similar uh, profiles and backgrounds. Not all of them, in fact, many of them are not uh, lifelong politicians. Um, many of them have business backgrounds. And I think it, it may be a sort of a new phenomenon, but... Um, I'm not alone in that regard. And I think um, maybe in the governor's races, you may send somebody off to Washington that's, you know, been a politician. But in the, when you're deciding uh, who the CEO or the chief executive is going to be to run your state, uh, you know, they, they want to pick somebody that's kind of competent and able to run things and get things done. And uh, so you see, you see a lot of business backgrounds in the folks that are running the states. Yeah. And I think it's, it's, it's helped me a lot. I mean, I, you know, I, I knew a little bit about government and I knew some stuff about politics, but the business background, you know, my, my whole career was about trying to, you know, bring people together to get things done. And it turns out that's actually a valuable thing to have in government too. <laughs> you, <know? laughs> you, you don't say accomplishing stuff. Yeah, and, I mean, and getting strange. Done. Nobody ever figured that out before. Do, do you find Maryland to be a, a particularly unique case these days because of the proximity to Washington, D.C., where so many of the, the longtime bureaucrats and the, the people that have just been in the system forever, a ton of them live in Maryland, obviously, um, and that maybe filters a little bit of what the political life is like there? Maybe to a certain extent. I mean, a big uh, our, one of our largest population centers is in metropolitan uh, Washington, but we're a pretty diverse state. You know, we've got the Washington metropolitan area, the Baltimore metropolitan area, 
but we've got uh, you know some some pretty dense areas we've got you know but it's uh, we've got suburban areas very rural areas of our state about 70 percent of our state is rural um, and so we're kind of a microcosm. I mean, we're a we're a American miniature. We have a, a little bit of the same things that everybody has. We have probably a higher percentage of federal government employees. So we actually have more people that are in the private sector that maybe have some kind of government contracting affiliation. But um, it may change. We're made a little bit more liberal and uh, a little bit more democratic leaning as a result of that. Um, it made it more challenging for me to get elected. But um, you know, we've been able to win over some of those folks, uh, which is common sense. What was going on there before you were elected that uh, a blue state would say, oh, yeah. let's uh, let us let this guy in who's not a career politician, who's cobbling together this kind of strange yeah. coalition? Well, they were uh, so fed up, uh, like I was. So, you know, I'm a small business guy who, uh, the previous governor, um, Martin O'Malley, had raised taxes 43 times in a row. Uh, and it had crushed our economy. We had lost 10,000 businesses in the 100,000 jobs and people were fleeing the state uh, in all directions. It was frustrating to a lot of people and it was to me as a small business owner and it was didn't matter what your party affiliation was, people were, were leaving and a, a Gallup poll came out that said 47% of all Marylanders wanted to leave the state. And that was mm -hmm. kind of the straw that broke the camel's back for me. Um, we, we, we were 49th out of 50 states in economic performance. Uh, so I, um, I, I was frustrated enough to do something crazy, like say, I've had enough, I'm gonna run for governor. And it was to the point where Democrats said, you know, I'm a lifelong Democrat. I've never considered voting for a Republican in my life, but this guy's starting to make sense. Um, and I focused on the economic issues and talked about, you know, we were gonna cut uh, taxes and regulations and focus on growing our private sector and trying to put more people back to work. And it's exactly what we did. We had the biggest economic turnaround in America. Uh, we, 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 we had more businesses uh, open and put more people to work than ever before in the history of the state. And we got things done even with our democratic legislature. Do, do you think bottom line, when you get rid of all the other issues that you're dealing with all day, that if you as a governor can keep the economy chugging and keep people at work, that you've basically done your job? Well, we, you know, we're wrestling with all kinds of really tough issues, Dave. When you're governor of the state, as I mentioned, you know, we're dealing with a, you know, close to a $50 billion budget and, you know, 60 some thousand employees. We have to provide all these different services. There's so many different issues, but really it is, uh, we're dealing with educating folks and handling transportation and, you know, law enforcement, all these multitude of things. Uh, but the, the, the focus that brought everybody together in our state that they could agree on, they could argue about various, uh, uh, you know, di different issues. But the one thing they all agreed on was, the pocketbook issues. And that's how mm -hmm. I put together, I put a, a group together called Change Maryland. It was a nonpartisan citizen organization. And we had just as many Democrats and independents as Republicans. And they were just uh, saying, let's focus on these issues. Let's not argue about all these other things right now. <laughs> let's just focus on these. And uh, we brought together a coalition. It turned out to be a winning coalition. And, and uh, you know, they, people say, how did you get, you know, suburban women and how do you get minorities and how do you get Democrats and independents to vote for a Republican? Uh, but I think it's one of the things that the Republican Party is going to have to think about. How do we reach out to a wider group of people in order to win elections in the future and so we can be in, in, in the position of making decisions? Yeah, so I want to get more to that and the, the sort of pure political side in a minute. But let, let's talk yeah. about what's, what's going on. I didn't mean to get too political on you, Dave. <laughs> a governor getting political. I can't believe it. Yeah, uh, yeah let's not let, do that let, anymore. 
Yeah, yeah. Let's let's talk about what's going on now, though, because uh, you know there's been the, I think the major conversation really um, at a high level is sort of what the federal government is supposed to do related to coronavirus and what the uh, state governments are supposed to do. Um, I suspect I generally know your thoughts on this, but but what do you think your job as a governor is right now, and what is not your job? What is the job of the federal government? Well, it's a great question. Look, I, I think the governors are on the front lines of this crisis, and, and we ought to be. We're, we're, we are out there. We're closest to the people's problems. We're working together with our, our local governments, and we're trying to really address these issues that are on the ground in our individual states. And each of our states are different, and we're, we're going after you know, the, the different uh, situations on the ground in our states. Um, but there was there was a major there were certain big things that only the federal government could do well. So, you know, early on in this crisis, um, you know, the federal government could have uh, taken more of a role in an overall testing strategy. They did. You know, they were a little bit, I think, behind the eight ball on um, in the early stages. And I talk about this in my book a little bit in mm -hmm. March and April when they weren't taking it as seriously. I mean, there were people in the administration who were. I think the president downplayed it a little more than he should have, and they didn't develop a lot of national strategies. We had 50 individual state strategies. I'm not saying states shouldn't have had the authority and independence to be able to make their own decisions, but certain things like we shouldn't have had 50 states competing with one another in a constrained market for desperately needed supplies, competing with the federal government and trying to you know, acquire things all over the world. Um, so on testing and contact tracing and, and some of the major issues that the power of the federal government could really have helped with the pandemic. And in some respects, they're getting better. Uh, but certain things the federal government can just do better. Can you talk a little bit about how you specifically make decisions when it comes to lockdown or the rest of it? Because as you know, I'm, I'm here in Los Angeles, California. We've had rolling lockdowns, then they let kicked in again. Last week, I was actually out to lunch for the first time in weeks. And as I was having lunch, we got the, the notification on my phone that wow. said the restaurants are closing in two hours. Now everything's closed again. And I've been very critical of Gavin Newsom, our governor here, not necessarily because of what he's doing, rather than the messaging. It seems like they just, they just give edicts. They never say, well, we've seen these numbers change this way. We know this behavior changed this or that. It's just, oh, now we're locking down. We'll see you in August. We'll see you in September. And, and that's yeah. what I'm sort of more concerned about. Can you talk a little bit about how you message things and how you actually come to the decisions? Yeah, it was a great question, Dave, and you hit on a couple of really good points. First of all, I agree that the messaging has been a problem. On you know, I think a lot of the governors are not messaging very well, and frankly, I think that's where the pre president's biggest weaknesses have been on the messaging side. Um, I I've tried to be just very direct and upfront and provide as much information as possible because I think most people, uh, whether the, the the news is good or bad, if you're if you're just you know, frank with them and you supply the facts in a situation like this, when we're dealing with, you know, in some cases, life and death matters in a serious health crisis and a global pandemic and an economic collapse, potentially, um, people want to know the facts and they want to know why you're making decisions. So, you know, I, I think I'm not the only one doing it, but their number, the governors who have been more direct and open and transparent, I think have been the most successful. On the decision-making process, I just tried to get, um, 
you know, the, we had to make decisions really quickly in this thing because it wasn't like we have deliberations with our legislature and let's talk about it and form a committee. You know, this was happening really fast at the beginning as we were spiking. We were seeing things happening in Italy and New York and people dying and bodies stacked up and overflowing hospitals. And we were hearing these things about two million potential deaths. And so we were it was speed time. It was of the essence to make some decisions. Um, you had to make the right decisions quickly. You couldn't hesitate. But I wanted to get the best uh, advice I could from the smartest people. We put together a task force of really smart doctors and scientists and business people. And, and I just tried to get the best input, listen to everyone, and then make decisions without hesitating. Um, and then communicate it really well to the people about this is what we're doing and here's why and here's how it's going to help. And so yeah. we took very aggressive and early actions did things that I never would have imagined ever doing, but it helped us flatten the curve. I mean, our numbers are really good. Our economy is really good. Uh, we took early and aggressive action. We had a safe and effective reopening. And, uh, our, you know, we're now, you know, way down from our peak that happened about more than 90 days ago. We've opened up 98% of our economy and our unemployment at 8% is staggering, but it's, it's, you know, some states are two and a half times worse, better than the rest of the country. Um, and, um, and our numbers, well, you know, we, we've had a number of deaths and we had the same problems other people had. We're in great shape right now. Yeah. On a personal note, as a guy that didn't want to always get into politics, when you have to make those decisions about, okay, we're going to extend the lockdown, we're going to lift the lockdown, whatever it may be. Um, what, what's that like for you? Cause I think people think of, people think of politicians sort of as robots, like, oh, they just make the choices, yeah. but yeah. No, it, it was really, really hard, Dave. It's, you know, I've been through and I talk about some of these, you know, personal and professional struggles and battles that I've been through in my book. And I share some of that, you know, what it was like and, and all the things that I had to deal with on a personal level or what I, battles I went through as governor or getting elected governor. This was the hardest thing that I think I've had to deal with, um, it, something we never imagined dealing with. And it wasn't just, you know, I went through a cancer battle where I was worried about how my family was going to take it or, you know, what, what, what was, I was dealing with other cancer patients, but this was, I was worried about 6 million people in my state and my decisions were going to impact not only their health, but I'm a lifelong small business guy, ran for governor with the sole purpose of creating jobs and helping small businesses and decisions I was going to make were going to impact, it was going to cost people jobs and hurt their small businesses or people were going to die. Uh, it, it, it was a really hard situation to be put in. And, and frankly, the president um, sort of left it up. He said, it's up to the governors. And we were getting, you know, um, you know, open up and then, you know, but you have to shut down. <laughs> he was given, the, the, the administration was giving us advice. You have to do these things or we're going to have 2 million deaths. And then, uh, you know, messaging the opposite stuff the, the next day. So it was, we were in tough situations, but I, I think, and everybody made different decisions, but uh, on a personal level, I mean, it's, there's been very little sleep for five months and a lot of stress. And you got people that are mad at you either way, no matter what you do, you can't make everybody happy. And, uh, you know, I just tried to do the very best I could based on the information I had and, um, you know, try to do the best thing for, for the people in the state. Yeah. So let's talk about the other thing that's going on, because there is another thing going on. There's always a lot of things, but there's sort of two main ones yeah. going on at the moment. And, and the second one, obviously is I guess the best way you'd, you'd describe it is, is either the racial unrest or the protesting or the rioting, just the whole conversation <laughs> we're having, the, the toppling of, of monuments. 
Now again, you're in Maryland, DC's right there, awful lot of monuments, awful lot of history is right in your backyard. Um, you know, you've got, you've got Baltimore there, which has its own set of, set of problems. Um, so I'm not even gonna ask you a question. I'm just gonna, ha I'm gonna just pass all yeah, that off to you. Awesome. Take, take it away, yeah. Yeah, well, that well, that's we're just going to let me tee it up, and um, what, so I, I, you know, you look at the title of the book; it's like riots, you know, cancer, riots, a global pandemic. I, I dealt with this, and I talk about this a lot, and there's real parallels to what's going on right now with the the riots, the the violence, the the unrest, the protests, uh, all, what, what, however you want to describe. There's a little bit of all of that going on across America in different cities. Um, in 2015, right after I became governor. Um, we had, I, I'd only been governor for 89 days, and we had the worst violence in 47 years break out in our largest city in Baltimore after the death of Freddie Gray. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, in the very first few hours uh, in Baltimore City, 400 businesses were burned and looted and destroyed. 127 police and firefighters were injured and hospitalized. Um, the, the city police force was overwhelmed. And the city was really having, a, you know, no ability to respond. It was, it was sort of out of control. And as governor, I uh, declared a state of emergency, um, sent in 4,000 members of the National Guard and 1,000 police officers into the city. Um, we allowed peaceful protests to go on for a week. Uh, we shut down the violence. We stopped the burning, uh, the looting, uh, and all the damage that was being done. And, um, you know, I write about this extent. I think I have five chapters on this in the book. Um, I walked the streets of Baltimore for a solid week to listen to people. I was hugging people who lost their businesses and their homes. I was meeting with community leaders. I was talking to faith based leaders. I was I was walking the streets where Freddie Gray's neighborhood. I was, you know, I was you know, dealing with the crisis, but also trying to lower the temperature. Um, and I think we found the balance of, I call it, you know, Reagan's peace through strength. We sent enough people in there to keep the citizens safe, to not allow the violence and destruction without further inflaming, you know, the, 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 the anger and violence by moving too aggressively. You know, we just, you know, if you were protesting in the streets, it was okay. If you're throwing rocks and setting things on fire, we're going to arrest you. And I think the mistakes that were made in some of the large cities today by just letting, you know, mob rule take over and, and just uh, not to respond at all is a big mistake. There's obviously legitimate frustrations uh, in the black uh, community. And I, I was very proud of actually Baltimore this, this time, as we're seeing things erupt everywhere. It was mostly very peaceful protests. Um, without the violence and destruct, destruction this time. And, and I think our, our uh, police, uh, state police, National Guard and city police in Baltimore did a really good job. And, uh, and I think the citizens here did a good job. They were actually pointing out the handful of you know, violent folks that weren't even from the city uh, and saying, hey, stop this. Uh, they wanted to just peacefully express their, their frustrations. But it's, it's uh, something we've got to get a handle on. And, and I, you know, I understand both sides of the argument, but I, I, I talk about this extensively in the book. I think you've got to, you know, we've got to find the way to get this under control um, while addressing some of the concerns. How miserable of a, of a decision is it for you when something's going down in one of your cities, in this case, Baltimore, where you have to then uh, bring in the National Guard or something else where I know it's your preference to let the mayor hopefully do his or her job and, and make sure that they take care of business. But as we're seeing in a lot of these states right now, I mean, we're really seeing it in Portland right now, 
the, the mayor seems either unwilling or unable to, to do anything. Yeah. And, and now we've got, we've got, in effect, we've got federal troops in the streets of Portland. Yeah, it's uh, they're making a, um, you know, the mayor, I, I think, by not taking action early, I think they they made a mistake. And I, it wasn't, uh, you know, I, I had I was very prepared for that. I kind of saw uh, what might be happening. Our team, had, we stood up the Maryland Emergency Management Agency in about a week in advance. We saw things potentially bubble up a couple days earlier. I was ready with a, an executive order, you know, already prepared. I've been in constant contact with the city. It's the first violence that broke out. I was on the phone with the mayor uh, saying, you know, this doesn't look like you have it under control. Uh, I took action within a matter of hours uh, to come in and, and, and back up the beleaguered uh, police that were overwhelmed in the city. And I think, you know, that early and aggressive action, again, it's sort of like this pandemic. There's no time to delay and hesitate and to be too passive. Um, but again, we, we didn't go in there and aggressively, you know, you know cause... Uh, you know, further escalation of the problem. We just went in there to keep the citizens safe and they're very appreciative of it. Um, you know, um, the people in Baltimore were like, thank you, because they were scared. They were really worried about this violence and the people trying to take over their city. Are you hearing from just regular people that they're really worried about the sort of mob rule that seems to be taking effect, regardless of whether you're for statues staying The fact that they are just coming down all over the place, um, as opposed to let's, you know, let's vote and make a decision or have, you know, some, some process related to the law. I mean, whether you want them down or not, I think most people agree that tearing them down yeah. is not legal right. at, the very, at the very least. Do, are regular people bringing that up to you that the rule of law seems to be uh, up in the air at the moment? Well, to me, I, it, it, I'm shocked that this is even a debate, really. Uh, I mean, we had, we did have, although I was praising uh, Baltimore this time about the lack of violence, we did have a situation where uh, in Little Italy, we had that somebody, they, a, a smaller group of folks tore down a Christopher Columbus statue. Now, I'm not here to debate the, the, the merits of whether Christopher Columbus was a great guy or not, but there's no way that we should uh, encourage you know, mobs to be able to tear down whatever piece of art or history that they want to, mm -hmm. instead of going before the city council and arguing why they think they maybe should, you know, put that in a museum or do something else. We actually had a city councilman member in Baltimore while they were tearing down that statue that tweeted something like, you know, maybe they should consider going down and tearing down another statue that was built to honor fallen police officers. Uh, a memorial that was put up by the families of, I mean, it was just unbelievable that we're having these kinds of discussions. I, I understand the debate about some some of these statues, maybe we really should take a look at, you know, making a decision to remove them. And I think that's a debate, that's an argument and a discussion we definitely should have. Um, and, and some of them, I understand why they're, they may be offensive to some folks, but you can't just allow mobs to decide which ones they want to tear down. Yeah, well, we seem to be in this sort of mob the mob moment, I suppose you could call it. Yeah. Um, wh what are you seeing between the, the tension right now between the Republicans and the Democrats? You, you strike me as what I would say is a pretty moderate Republican. Um, you, can, you can either, you can assess that statement however, however you'd like, but that's what you strike me as. Um, what, what I'm worried about is that, you know, I, I don't know how much you know about me, but I was a, I was a lifelong Democrat, lefty, progressive until the last couple of I years. Know. And I know, and, 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 then, and then you saw the light. That, and here we are, right? And here we are. But, but what I am worried about is that my, my former side, so to speak, and I don't like doing it in sides, but you know, there's only so many ways we can talk about these things. 
that my former side, that it seems like if you don't go fully woke, if you don't go fully to where yeah. the, the Bernie AOC energy is, that they're just gonna take you out. And are, yeah. are you seeing that at a state level too? Oh yeah, no, there's no question about that. And so, yeah, I look, I, <clears throat> I'm a lifelong uh, Republican. I was a chairman of Youth for Reagan, and I was, in, you know, I would say most of my life I would be considered a, a conservative uh, Republican. I, and now I guess they call me a moderate because, you know, I, 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 am, I really try to avoid the extremes of either party. And I think one of the problems we have today is that. You know, first of all, I like to avoid the divisive, angry rhetoric, and because I want to work together to get things done, that makes me a moderate, I guess. Um, I don't think, um, you know, trying to get things done and finding compromise, you know, is a dirty word. Compromise isn't a bad thing. Uh, mm. Doing nothing is a bad thing. <laughs> Getting nothing done, standing up. You know, I'm going to stick to my principles, but I'm not going to accomplish anything. Um, but you know, right now, I think the Democratic Party is moving too far to the left. And I think the Republican Party is now shrinking their base down to not appeal to enough people. And there's a growing uh, number of people that are either moderate or right of center, left of center, who are somewhat frustrated with the entire you know, political process. And they're like, this, this is the best we can do. And, 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 and you know, they're not really on the extremes of either party. You, know, I, I, you see polling that says you know, maybe 15% consider themselves very progressive or very conservative on each side and everybody else is somewhere in the middle and they're saying so how do we you know, how do like we fix the, that the exhausted how? majority that goes why can't we get somebody normal and why can't we get something done so how do you fix it how do you fix it it's hard to fix it but i mean part of it is i mean it's a broke it, look some people have given up and they're like we're never going to fix the broken politics you know i would argue that some of that we've been, and I talk about this in my book, um, we, I think you can you know, lower the temperature, try to avoid the divisive rhetoric, try to find ways to actually work in a pragmatic way. But there's also structural things that we have to do. I mean, we gotta get rid of gerrymandering and the way our primary process works, only the, the people on the extremes win the primary. There's no competitive races anywhere in the general elections typically. And we end up with a, uh, you know, people in Congress that are, you know, not ever going to agree on anything and not not ever meet in the middle on anything. So um, I think there we've got to kind of work on how do we how do we elect, uh, you know, people that are willing to go down and work together and get. I mean, I think people are frustrated whether they are on the right or the left about the fact that nobody can get anything done. Yeah, I'm willing to work with anybody. I'm kind of on the get to work and get things done school of politics. I don't care if you're a Democrat or Republican, if you'll help me fix the problem. Yeah, and that's sort of been your position with Trump, right? Because you've obviously, I mean, even here, you've been, you've been critical of some of his responses, but then there's some other things that you think he's done pretty well. Yeah, no, well, look, I've never been um, one of those people. You've never seen me as one of the guys that's on constantly criticizing the president for no reason. Never done that. Never been uh, going after him in a personal way. There's plenty of people on, on, on TV that'll do that constantly. But I'm also never, I'm not one of those Republicans that's afraid to speak up if I disagree, which you know a lot of them are, um, I just pretty much like I tell it like it is. I mean, I have, have you know I, I respect when I praise the president when they do something right, and and I and I agree with them when I think you know he's 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 in the in the right on something. But I always say if they haven't done something well, I'm gonna I'm not gonna just sit down and shut up and and keep it to myself. And and there are a lot of Republicans who agree with me, but they're afraid to say it. Does it ever sort of kill you that like a, a nice guy like you 
that Trump was willing to do all the things that maybe somebody like you wouldn't have done. And when I say someone like you, I mean someone like me too, that there are sort of more moderate people that maybe just won't do the things that it takes to win yeah. at that level. It's not even a judgment, it just sort of is, that yeah. we're, we're all sort of wired a little differently, we all take the temperature of the room a little bit differently. Yeah. You know, look, I'm I'm willing to uh, stand up and, and fight for the things that I believe in, but I'm not for divisiveness and dysfunction. And I would argue that um, people like me, and, and I look at our record over the past six years, we've been more effective and can get more things done. I'm not sure, and, and it's not talking about philosophy now, or or not agreeing with many of the president's positions of philosophy, I would agree with on the economy, and I think he's done some things that are pretty good, but he hasn't got a lot done in Congress. Um, and some of, the, some of it is that personality, and some of it is, I think he could be more successful. I think sometimes he's his own worst enemy, and he could be more effective um, if he tried to do some things a little differently. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I, agree. I get it, you gotta stand up and fight, but sometimes, that's not the skill set that you need to use to get things done. Hmm. Uh, let's talk about the personal side of the book a little bit. Uh, you talk about uh, battling cancer. So let, let's talk yeah. about it. Yeah, so um, I talked about the riots, you know, that, that was you know, right after I became governor. And I went through that. I'd been through my first legislative session, which is a 90-day session here in Annapolis. And I was on my first trade mission. Uh, to uh, Asia, went to Korea, China, and Japan. Uh, I noticed a lump in my throat, and I was feeling some aches and pains, and I decided to you know, go to a doctor to check it out. Um, you know, I just wasn't feeling terrible. I just felt a little rundown and a few you know, things that I'd noticed. And I had three doctors uh, you know, come in and tell me that I had very advanced and aggressive cancer. Uh, from my neck to my groin, I had 50-some tumors. Um, and it was a rapidly growing, life-threatening, um, you know, large B-cell non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. And they, it was pretty grim news. They told me I'd been governor for five months. Uh, hmm. It was Friday of Father's Day weekend when I got this news. Um, and I, uh, you know, I had to go home and, and you know, it hit, hit me out of the blue. I had no idea, you know, that this was going on. I don't know how these things were growing inside of me. And I didn't know. I'd been through all that work, winning the campaign, going through all that, you know, really working hard, you know, 10, 12 hour days, seven days a week and uh, still working like Energizer Bunny. Uh, but I, I uh, you know, the hardest part was how am I gonna explain this to my family? I went home and told my, my wife and my three daughters and, and who were there for Father's Day weekend. And then I had to, you know, explain it to my, my 80 year old dad who was over for Father's Day. And, and then uh, I went and had to explain it to the, my staff who had worked so hard and yeah, just you know, helping us put the administration together, and then I had to tell the six million people of Maryland who just put their faith in me. Um, and it was uh, it was a difficult thing. I was going through 24-hour day chemotherapy. I uh, went through about an 18-month battle. Um, I was very open and transparent. I mean, I uh, I shared everything I was going through, and it was you know, it was an incredible. It, you know, I really, I think I have a different perspective on life, I, it made me realize the important things. Um, and I, I got to meet some incredible people who were going through much tougher battles than mine and got to meet their families. And it's a whole nother focus for me. And even if I'm not a uh, governor, it gives me, I mean, I'm gonna continue to fight to help uh, you know, raise awareness and, and raise money for these terrible diseases. 
Do, do I mean, so of, many people are touched by cancer. I, everywhere I go, because of my experience, people know about it, and they'll tell me, share their story about what they went through, or their spouse, or their child, or their or one of their parents, or somebody you know, somebody you love has been through this before, and it was it was pretty incredible. Yeah. Did you think about not coming back even once you were on the other side, just because you didn't want to deal with the stress or anything like that? You know, they asked me um, at my very first press conference when I announced this news, and I'll tell you a funny story. I, I, uh, I had to do a biopsy surgery. Um, they had to take a lymph node out from under my arm, and the doctor said, you know, you're going to be fully under anesthesia. We're going to give you some pretty serious painkillers, so you just got to go home and rest. And I said, well, I can't, I can't go home and rest. I got to go do a press conference. And he says, oh, you can't do a press conference. You know, you're going to be out of it. And I go, well, I have to because I'm going to go in to start my 24-hour chemo. And he goes, they're not going to ask you questions at this press conference, are they? And I go, yeah, pretty sure they're going to ask me questions. So I stood up there and took questions. And they were like, you know, are, you, know, are you going to resign? Is the lieutenant governor going to take over? What happens if this and what happens if that? And I was, I was sort of on truth serum because I had all these drugs in me. And, and I just, it was, you know, it sounded like I was telling my family in my living room. I just told the whole public exactly what was going on. Uh, but I, I, you know, I never thought about resigning. I'm like everybody else who went through cancer. I still had to try to, you know, try to do my job. And um, I was working from the hospital bed. I, you know, I was, they were feeding me full of so much drugs and, and uh, you know, I was doing steroids and I was up all night. So I was actually working more from the hospital. I was texting all night and telling people, you know, get this done and get that done. Hmm. Well, listen, I, uh, I know we're tight on time here. So my final question, since you are in Annapolis and I mentioned right before that I get to Annapolis pretty often. Do you know the name of that Mexican joint on Main Street in Annapolis? They've got some of the best margaritas and tacos I've ever had. And I've been trying to think of the name the entire time I'm talking to you. Oh, I guarantee really... one of your staff knows. Well, one of the staff, what's the, what's the best place on Main Street? Come the on. Mexican joint, that little Mexican joint. They There's do... a whole bunch of them. They do street tacos. Oh, it's just great. Yeah, 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 I don't know, but I'll tell you what, when you come into Annapolis, we're going to take you there. We're going to find out and we're going to get you there. You know, we're going to get some margaritas when I see you here in Annapolis. That would be a pleasure. Absol well, absolutely. Governor Larry Hogan, thanks for doing this uh, and uh, yeah, good luck. Yeah, hey, Dave, thank and, you. Thank you. I enjoyed it. All right. And if you guys know someone who could appreciate a different viewpoint, be sure to share this video by clicking the share arrow below. Thanks again, Governor.